This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, I'm Michael Shorten, Chicago is. Welcome. This is episode 31, and we're going to be taking a break from AD&D to talk about OD&D and one of my favorite computer role-playing games of all time, Ultima, and how I made them work together. And this episode starts with a question by a listener. Hey, Josh Beckelheimer here. So I'm actually really interested in your game that's set in the world of Ultima. Uh, Ultima Online was my very first experience with Ultima and with massive multiplayer online games. I um, spent many, many hours in that game. I think I was in middle school, high school. I can't remember. I think it was high school. But me and my buddy, he was one that found the game and just told me all about it. And oh my god, we had so much fun. And I love how you can just do anything. It truly was an open-world experience where your character could be whatever you wanted to be and you could do whatever you wanted to do. It really didn't have the limits like other MMOs did. And man, I loved that game. And every now and then I'll go back and play it, and but I never last long in. That's Josh Beckelheimer of JB Publishing. Thanks, Josh, for the question. I play a little bit of OD&D along with playing a lot of AD&D. And I currently have two games running in it. The first is an OD&D game that I've been playing with my wife for a while. And I've talked about that in previous episodes, and perhaps I'll do an episode focused just on that game. But my second OD&D game is the result of a really long love that I've had for the very first computer role-playing game that I ever played. And that was called Ultima 3 Exodus. Now, this is taking us back to about 19, I want to say 1983-84. And previous to that, I had played NetHack crawlers or NetHack-like games on the old Commodore PET 4032 and the Model 1 and 2 of the TRS-80 computers. So no doubt you're getting an idea of, of the period of time I'm talking about, and that's the late 70s, early 80s. But Ultima 3 was what I consider to be the first really full-fledged computer role-playing game that I had ever played. Now, at the time, it was amazing. I have overland travel to go wherever I wanted. So if I just wanted to walk around the entire world and killing monsters, I could. There was nothing stopping me from doing it. You know, there were puzzles to be solved. There were NPCs in all of these different towns to interact with, each with their own clues and some of them who would give me quests. There was combats with groups of monsters, orcs and skeletons and bandits and, and of course, pirates on ships, which then, if I defeated the pirates, I could board those ships and have sea travel with naval combat with sea serpents and all sorts of fun creatures. There were dungeons with traps and gremlins and these damn strange winds which would blow out my torches. I mean, I was hooked. I probably spent a good chunk of my young life (laughs) playing that game. Now, 
the Ultima 3 game was the third in a series of games. There was Ultima 1 and Ultima 2 uh, prior to that, and they were all tile-based role-playing games. And each one showed a level of sophistication above the previous one. And I played all three of them on the Commodore 64. Those games really set the foundation for what I compare computer RPGs to, to today even, because they awoke in me such a, uh, I don't know, a, a wonder or a, a, you know, this uh, thing about exploring lands and being able to go wherever I wanted to and explore these dungeons. And, and it was just, you know, what we consider today to be the quintessential D&D experience, but it was on a computer and I could do it all the time. You know, it really wasn't until I found the Elder Scrolls Morrowind game in the early 2000s that I found a computer game that awoke in me kind of the same feelings that I had in playing these first three games. After Ultima 3 began a change in the Ultima series, and, and I read online that this is due to Richard Garriott having thought that you know, the first three Ultimate games, these are just simple little entertainment games. Nobody's going to make much of a big deal of them. But after hearing that parents were genuinely concerned about how these games were affecting their children and hearing rumors about satanic cults, he decided to start creating games based on morality and based on choices that the players would make. And so Ultima 4 and all the Ultimate games on through um, all nine of them they uh, they took on a very different tone. I never played those much. Um, after Ultima 3, my life changed. I went into the military, uh, kind of got on with life, and so I've never had a chance to really go back and pick them up, and I probably should. It'd probably do me uh, good to to be able to see those games. Let's go back in time to 2008 and 2009. So Swords and Wizardry has first come out. Now, Swords and Wizardry, for those of you that may not have heard of it before, is a retro clone of the original Dungeons & Dragons game as published in 1974, plus all of the supplements that were released in the 70s afterwards. So Sword and Wizardry took these games, rewrote them in a much, you could call it clearer or more modern format and made them available free of charge to anyone who wanted to download it and play the game. When this came out, there was this explosion of creativity surrounding swords and wizardry. Um, and a lot like what you're seeing today with the old school essentials game, uh, the OSE game, there's a lot of creativity, a lot of people writing stuff for it. So 10 years ago, this was happening, but with swords and wizardry. Now, at the time, a gentleman by the name of Marv Brig, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, <laughs> Finarvin, I'm sorry. Uh, Marv is also known as Finarvin Online. He is the administrator for the OD&D 74 forums that you may hear me uh, talk about from time to time. Well, Marv took Swords and Wizardry even further back and took out all of the things from the supplements and made a game called Swords and Wizardry White Box. And this truly reflects what OD&D would have felt like, along with some of the changes that Swords and Wizardry introduced. Uh, you know, things like the the single saving throw value 
and some other small twists. Um, he threw an ascending armor class in case people really were, you know, hooked on having a larger value for armor class than the old school smaller value for armor class. But he released it for free as well. Now, I loved Swords and and I still do love Swords and Wizardry White Box. It's the perfect toolkit for me to be able to write the game that I want to write. And so at the time, because all the cool kids were writing games and settings and whatnot, I decided to do much the same. And so I thought, what a neat way to get back into two loves that I really have for D&D and for Ultima. So how do I go about doing that? In Ultima lore, the first three games are set in what's known as the Age of Darkness. Now, this is a storyline that centers around a conflict caused by a dark wizard known as Mondane, who is threatening the lands of Cesaria, which is the lands that uh, Ultima takes place in. And it's up to the player, who is known as the, quote, stranger, who comes from our reality of Earth in order to save the day there in Cesaria. In the first Ultima game, the stranger travels to the lands to get items to make themselves strong enough to actually defeat Mondane himself. In the second game, Mondane had an apprentice called Minax the Sorceress, and she goes and affects space and time that threatens the existence of everything, and it's up to the stranger to go and rescue reality. In the third game, we find out that Mondane and Minax um, created a child, if you will, or, or uh, an offspring, and it's a demonic computer AI, and it's called Exodus, and Exodus is now threatening the lands. And so the stranger has to go and get strong enough and collect all of these uh, tools and things in order to be able to save the lands from Exodus. Now, as I mentioned, after those three games, the tone of the game shifted into a different sort of lore where it was more about the works and, and the ways that characters did things as much as what they did. And there were a total of nine games, plus there was a lot of different spin-offs and offshoots. And I will link you in the show notes to a wiki on Ultima that covers pretty much anything you would want to know about the game series. Now, most of you have probably heard of Ultima Online. Now, that was one of truly first successful MMOs ever created, and it, from what I understand, I've never played Ultima Online. This is my true confession. I never actually played any Ultima past the first three games, but it's my understanding that this takes place in such a way that it honors the lore from the previous games, but it also kind of sets up its own uh, own lore. Now, if, of course, you have you know more knowledge or want to school me on this, please feel free to let me know. Um, and what's interesting about uh, Ultima Online is it kind of set the bar at the time. It was very popular, and in fact, it is still played as far as I understand, even today, there are people that uh, stick to UO and see it as their home. So, okay, so we're in 2008-2009. I have this lore of Ultima from the Age of Darkness 
what am I going to do here? So I'm going to take OD&D as a toolkit, as a foundation, and I'm going to write a game that makes you feel like you are in the Ultima of the games that I remember and love. Well, well how am I going to do that? And I found that OD&D gave me the perfect platform for doing this. Now, from a character creation perspective, this wasn't too difficult. Um, the first two Ultima games were really simple affairs. I mean, you only had four races, human, elf, dwarf, and bobbit. You can guess what a bobbit is. And they had, you know, the archetypical character classes, fighter, wizard, cleric, thief. Um, the third ultimate game gave you a few more options. As far as race, you could be what's known as a fuzzy. If you think of a fantasy Ewok, you know exactly what they were shooting for. And class-wise, there was a ton of options now. Not only could you be the four archetypical characters, but you could also be a barbarian, a paladin, druid, an illusionist, and a few other options. And they all had their pluses and minuses. A lot of them could cast spells in a limited form or fashion and or have thief-type abilities. Now, I found that that was pretty easy enough to port over to an OD&D white box kind of uh, game at the time, um, including some variations on races and classes, plus the classes that didn't exist in typical OD&D. Um, you know, that was one thing that I broke away from in using, well, actually not broke away from, that's one thing that I did with OD&D that's kind of in, in its DNA. I wanted a game that felt like the setting that I was shooting for. So I wanted it to feel like Ultima. And OD&D, by its very nature, is simple and robust enough that I could do that. So I was able to take what came out of the first three Ultimas and come up with things, you know, like uh, pluses and minuses based on your race and what class you were going to choose from. And it worked great. Felt like, you know, Felt like it ended up feeling like what I wanted Ultima to feel like. Now, at the time, as I mentioned in 2008, 2009, there was a lot of material being written by a lot of people on how to implement things like illusionists in uh, swords and wizardry, how to do barbarians and rangers and whatnot. And so I took a lot of those inspirations and folded and wrapped up my own. And, and, and there you are. Now, as a nod to the three games, I limit the classes for what you can have in levels one and two. So you're limited to the classic four uh, class types. Once you get to level three, then you can change to what I call advanced classes. So a fighter can change into now being a barbarian or a ranger or a paladin. A wizard can become an alchemist, a druid, or a lark, also known as the bard. And so on. And again, this was kind of my, I guess you'd call it, homage to the Ultima series where the first two games were very limited and then the third game kind of, you know, expanded the universe. And that's what I've done as well. So that's character creation. 
I do it much the same way as OD&D. You've got the statistics, the, the six stats, you roll them up, you figure out what race and class you want to be, you make adjustments thereof based on that combination, and you go on. Other aspects like equipment and movement and combat and exploration work as you might imagine it working in OD&D. Because the tropes between Ultima and D&D are close enough that things pretty much work the same in both games. Richard Garriott, who's the creator of the Ultima series, and he was the lead programmer, or the only programmer, for the first three games, he was very much influenced by 1970s D&D. He grew up with playing D&D. In fact, his very first game that he sold in the late 70s was a basic D&D game written for the Apple II that he shoved in Ziploc baggies and sold at a local computer store. And thus, an entire empire was born, I guess. So you can see why D&D and Ultima feel a lot the same. But then we get to magic. And that's where I make a huge break with OD&D, because I use a spell point system. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Spell points versus Vancean magic, that's a huge debate in the D&D world that I do not want to get into. I'm not going to settle it one way or the other. For me, I had no problems converting from the Vancean system to the spell point system, especially since I cheated and I used a system that a gentleman by the name of Armanath, who also is on the OD&D 74 forum, developed. It's a matrix system that's based on your ability score, which, you know, either for in intelligence or wisdom, and your level. You cross-reference the two, and that's how many spell points you have. Now, why did I use spell points, though? So in the first two Ultimas, spells were not memorized. They were cast from scrolls. So you would go to a shop in a town in Ultima 1 and 2. You would buy your scrolls, and that was your magic ammunition. In Ultima 3, this changed to where now you had the concept of mana, also known as spell points. So depending on the class you were and your intelligence or wisdom, would tell you how much mana you had. And you had divine spells, cleric spells, and you had arcane spells, magic user spells. And each spell that you would cast took a certain number of points. And so you were really only limited by how much mana that you had. If you had enough mana, you could cast the most powerful spell anytime you wanted. You just actually had to raise high enough and level in order to get that amount of mana. And once you were out of mana, you would have to wait for it to regenerate, which could take a while depending on your class and other factors. Now, I had no problem at all converting this to OD&D because, again, OD&D is robust enough that you've got the concept of magic, but there's nothing so intrinsic that you can't take that system out and bolt something else in place, which is what I did. For my ultimate game, I took the spells from all three of the uh, Age of Darkness games, and I found their OD&D equivalent, or I wrote something that was in the spirit of uh, OD&D, and I assigned those spells to different levels. A spell's po point cost is its level. So 
first level spell is going to take one spell point. A six level spell is going to take six points to cast. The thing about my system is that you don't just automatically know these spells. You still have to go out and find them. Whether you find them through scrolls or you find them in other spellcaster spellbooks, you then copy them to your spellbook. But once you've copied it, you know it, and then you can cast it as many times as you have spell points. The other thing that I kind of did was, again, a nod to the first two games, is that first-level spellcasters can only cast from scrolls. It's kind of reflecting that they're gaining enough experience so that they can now memorize the spell and then once they hit second level they can start memorizing and casting spells once they've copied them into their spell book. I kind of like the way that feels. Similar to Ultima in my in my OD&D game some spell scrolls can be used by all characters. Uh, Lorem or Lumine which is the light spell. You have Incon which is a knock, meaning you can open doors and, and chests and locked things. And then a par unum, which is find traps. Again, these are nods to the uh, Ultima games, which had those scrolls available for people to use. The setting itself was a little bit more difficult. You know, okay, so I've got the character rules and I've got how combat works and I've got how magic works, but what about the land? What about the people? What about the cities and the quests and whatnot? And for that, I kind of took the three games and skeeshed them together. So in my setting, you have Mondane, the evil wizard, who is summoning forth the creatures from the bowels of the earth and threatening the good people. Um, Minax, the sorceress, is alive and apprentice to Minax, and, or apprentice to Mondane, and they're off cooking something up. Could be a demonic computer AI? Who knows? Maybe I'll have to play my game to find out. The map itself... The the three games varied enough that I just took the map from the third game. It's a large enough land. I sprinkled a couple of bits in that that reflect the first two games and, and have some destinations that people might be able to go to. But I used the 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 third game's map roughly. The, you know, one continent and then the cities are all spread out there. However, in my Ultima game, you can not only fight on the open seas, but you can also, perhaps, should you find the equipment of the ancients, fly into outer space and have combats there. Yes, Ultima 1 and 2 took you into outer space as well, thus reflecting a little bit of the gonzo feeling that was in Dungeons & Dragons in the 1970s. And so... The naval combat, I took ideas and inspiration from OD&D itself as well as other various games that I've seen around that I liked. Oh, I like that idea. Let me steal that. And for space combat, I'm using a port off of a freely available and free to, I believe it's public domain. It's called the Minimal Space Combat System by Timothy Swenson, and it was written in 1997 or 1996. And I'll include links to all of these uh, types of things as other, as well as other sources of inspiration in the show notes that, you know, if you want to go check it out yourself, you can, as well as I'll provide games to my books for uh, playing the ultimate game. You might be interested in seeing what I came up with. 
so yes, I am playing this game. Um, I've played it several times as one-offs at conventions, and it, it's gone really well. And I decided, um, I believe it was last year, I tried to run an online scheduled real-time game set in the Ultima world. Worked well for the first couple of sessions, but then people started having schedule conflicts. I couldn't get enough people together to run a live game, so I had to let that go. And I converted it into a play-by-post game, which I'm currently running on my Discord server. I've got uh, two players. One is a longtime Ultima fan who is a member of the Internet uh, Ultima Dragons Club. Yes, Ultima lovers have formed their own club. And yes, I'm a member. I'm known as the Chicago Wiz Dragon. Um, and the other player in my play-by-post game is a player in my ADD campaign. They are playing as strangers who have arrived to the lands and they're exploring it. And so, yes, they're kind of playing themselves in a fantasy world. In fact, they still have their cell phones on them. They still have other gear that they brought with them from the real world to Caesarea. Um, and right now they are in the middle of exploring a dungeon on a quest by a king in order to help them to reunite some of Lord British's old friends to fight Mundane. So, uh... It's a, it's a slow game. Play-by-post games tend to be like that, but it's a lot of fun, and they themselves have ran into some of the unique aspects of having a Ultima setting, i.e. the magic and how things work there. Now, here's the thing. So, bringing this back to OD&D. OD&D, or games based on OD&D, made this possible because... OD&D is a toolkit, and I think that's kind of the secret sauce to what Gygax and Arneson did back in 1974, and I think it's reflective of how they saw games as wargamers. You know, to, to a wargamer, games are meant to be altered and tuned to how the referee and the players see it working. If you've played any war games or if you've talked to any war gamers, you'll know that house rulings and tuning a set of rules to that particular scenario or campaign is an accepted tradition and almost, you know, expected. It's, you know, not really common that you'll find a wargaming game that's been played long enough that hasn't been tuned to some degree. When I read OD&D or I read a game like Swords and Wizardry White Box, I don't see it as every rule is there to be followed as is. I see it as a starting point and giving me enough of a structure that I can create the game I want. I wanted an Ultima feeling game and OD&D gave me that starting point where I could easily build you know, the concept of the different races and how they worked, which is slightly different in Ultima than it is in, you know, stock Dungeons & Dragons. The fact that I could have a spell point system and the game works quite happily with that. You can run generic OD&D and have a fantastic time, but 
for my way of thinking, I think it really shines when you add on the trappings of the setting and you get a tight meld between the two that the setting supports the rules, which supports the settings, and you've got yourself your world and something that you can build on. And that's certainly what I've tried to do with my Ultima OD&D game. I hope you'll take a read of them and tell me what you think. Well, that's about it for this episode. I'm getting close to the 30-minute mark. I hope you've enjoyed this little dive into OD&D and what I've been able to do with it to kind of reflect my love for Ultima. Next episode, we're going to get back to what's going on in my AD&D campaigns and what kind of fun stuff I'm up to. If you want to leave comments, please feel free to leave me a message using the Anchor app or through the Anchor website. I'll leave a link there. If you want to, you can also call in to a voicemail that I've set up just specifically for comments to my podcast or leave me an email. That works just as well. So until next time, game on. It's Mike Shorten, Chicago Wiz, and I believe this is episode 32. I'm doing a driving podcast, so I'm not quite sure which episode this is. Uh, it's uh, COVID Thursday, and uh, just getting back from an early morning run to the grocery store. Never realized how much food teenage kids eat until you're stuck at home with them 24-7. <laughs> it's been an interesting adventure. Um, hope you all are doing well. I, uh, it's interesting to see how things have kind of changed a little bit. Podcast readership is down all across the board. Um, playing a lot more games and a lot more people seem to be playing games online. Um, in fact, just had a test session with my tabletop players. We're going to migrate to Zoom and Roll20 for the next two to three games or however long this lasts. Here in uh, Illinois, in the Midwestern United States, we have a fairly progressive governor who has locked down the state for uh, 30 more days. And considering the city of Chicago is within our state, it, I think it makes a lot of sense. We're a uh, high-density, high-travel state, especially here up in the northern parts. The southern parts of Illinois are way more rural. It's it's almost like night and day traveling from Chicago downstate. Anyway, so this is going to last a little bit longer, and uh, gaming's going to change a little bit. I have to admit, I have not been listening to y'all as much as I should be because, um, well, I, I miss my commute. I had a half hour each way. That was an hour of listening to uh, all your thoughts and, and uh, ideas. And I've been a lot busier. I've been busy with work. I'm part of a medical, uh, re regulated medical waste company. And as you can imagine, with all the testing and the increase in hospital visits and everything that's going on with Corona, our business has just gone crazy right now. So I, I've been busy with all that. 
um, busy helping take care of kids with their schooling and then keeping them entertained with gaming and whatnot. I'm about to introduce my 13-year-old to, to wargaming through that classic game of Stratego. I, I played Stratego, oh God, long, long time ago. So uh, I was really happy to see it was still available. Bought a brand new set and going to teach her a little bit about wargaming. We'll see how that goes. But it's just stuff like that and that's been keeping me real busy uh, converting all of my games that were at one point uh, tabletop or less involved in Roll20 now into the Roll20 platform and kind of been doing a trial by fire learning how it works, learning how the macros work and the character sheets work and whatnot. Fortunately, my games are simple, so I don't have to set up a lot, but... Uh, there, there is still some overhead that I'm not used to. It's kind of a different type of prep. You know, before it'd be sketching on a piece of paper or uh, graph paper and noodling some notes into Google Drive. Now the the idea that in order for people to get visuals, you got to throw something on the screen, whether it's researching images or scanning my uh, chicken scratching and actually putting it into uh, Roll20. And, and you know blowing up the map and then removing all of my secret stuff and all my notes on my maps uh, it's just a different workflow and, and, and it's taken more time so these kinds of things are uh, our transitions and it's just soaking up my time here I thought I was gonna have a lot of time to paint miniatures and get armies done and I gotta be honest with you I've maybe completed two figures in the past uh, two and a half weeks of uh, staying at home so I can tell you how my time is uh, really uh, really spent differently I kind of wonder if the same is true for you all you know if, if you're kind of finding the same thing and judging by a couple of y'all's podcasts like uh, Tim Shorts over at Gothridge Manor sounds like he's uh his time has changed and jason at uh nerds rpg variety cast you know that poor guy is going to be busy for the next few weeks it sounds like he had to drop out all his games including a couple of mine so uh so yeah interesting times i just hope you all are keeping safe um i am going to have a couple of things coming up in uh future episodes one of them is uh, someone on Reddit, the AD&D subreddit, was asking a little bit about uh, pursuit and evasion and complaining about the rules there. And I've taken a look at those rules, so I'm going to take another look and uh, go through it and see if I can demystify it a little bit or confirm that, yeah, this is really a, <laughs> a very complicated subsystem as we found some of them are. And... Uh, Another suggestion came from Jason in one of his uh, voicemails he's left me. He suggested I go through Unearthed Arcana for first edition. Unearthed Arcana is a set of optional rules. And according to what I've read, it breaks a lot of things. But there may be some good ideas. I have never really read it before. I've skimmed through it a couple of times and uh, never really given much time or much thought to the book but you know what I've got a uh, I've got a 
tradition now where before I go to bed, I try to read for about an hour and a half, or not an hour and a half, a half an hour to about 45 minutes. Winds me down, and uh, we'll see maybe if uh, I can spend that time and read Unearth Arcana and let you know what, what I think of it. Uh, thank you very much for the kind comments about doing the episode with my wife. She had a great time. In fact, we're about to play another game here soon in her in her campaign. I've had to do a quick research on the different types and ways that elven lands and fairy lands have been presented. And I'm thinking more of like the Seely Court and the Unseely Court and the real mysterious far off arcane elves, not the more Tolkien elves that are just like fancy humans, but really weird, chaotic, uh, in your face with how odd they are kind of elves. And to do that, I was reading a book called uh, Three Hearts, Three Lions. It might be reversed, might be Three Lions, Three Hearts by Paul Anderson. It was a book that was written in the 60s. When you read it, it's an interesting book because it mixes sci-fi theory with fantasy and a little bit of the Arthur Caroling Carolingian mythology. It's a very interesting read. It's, it's not a very long book, but it's a densely packed with ideas book. I can certainly see why Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson listed it as a influence on D&D because there are so many things in that book that are just direct takes like alignment, chaos versus law, paladins, how trolls work, the troll battle, oh my goodness, With it's given me an idea now how I'm going to run trolls because the troll in this uh, book, I don't want to spoil it for you, it's towards the end, it is a heck of a battle. I, I was excited reading it, which doesn't happen very often. So did a little research, got my ideas for how I'm going to run elves now, so I'm prepared for Angie's next game. And of course, I've got the family 5th edition camp campaign that I'm running. Uh, I've got an audio dungeon game that I'm running with a couple of folks from the audio dungeon. I'm doing a uh, old school dungeon delve using 1st edition AD&D. I'm running that early on Saturday mornings, hopefully... Uh, my friends from the UK and in other time zones will be able to make that game. So we'll see what happens there. So yeah, busy doing a lot of things, actually playing a lot of games uh, instead of painting minis and terrain and uh, working my butt off. Anyway, I'm here at home. Sorry about the, uh, uh, the noise and whatnot, but uh, hopefully this won't be too bad of a episode and you'll hear everything. Please stay safe. Please stay well. If you are in a place where they're saying stay at home, please, if you can, stay at home. Uh, we need to flatten this curve. I'm just watching the numbers, and it's truly scary times right now. And I don't want to read about any of you all getting sick or, God forbid, passing away from this. So stay well. Stay safe. Have fun playing and game on.